And Saul approved of his, Stephen's, execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them into prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and they saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who, they, who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Well, one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible is Isaiah 55, 10 through 13. And um, I've never had a life verse. If you were to press me and say, like, hey, what's your favorite verse in the Bible? I, I wouldn't be able to point to one because there's so many that I love. But if I had to narrow it down to like a top three, this passage would definitely be in there. Isaiah 55, 10 through 13. If you're not familiar with it, it's a promise. It's actually 11 promises that make up one big promise. And it's a promise all about the unstoppable power of the word of God. Look at it with me. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish that which I purpose and will succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you will break forth into singing and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn will come up the cypress. Instead of the briar will come up the myrtle. And it will make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that will not be cut off. Now, I don't know if you were looking for the 11 promises, but they're in there. Four short verses, 11 incredible promises. For example, my word will not return empty. That's a promise. Um, it will accomplish my purpose. It will succeed. Where there are thorns, there will be a cypress. Where there are briars, there will be myrtles. It will make a name for the Lord. It will not be cut off and on and on it goes. Do you believe that? That the word of the Lord is that powerful that it can do all of those things. I read an illustration this past week about the size and the scope of our universe that totally blew my mind. In it, a teacher compared the miles uh, between the earth and the sun, uh, the earth and the stars too, by using a, a sheet of paper like this. And so just imagine with me that, that this sheet of paper represents the 93 million miles between us and the sun. This is 93 million miles. It's, it's 0 0.05 millimeters thick, but this is 93 million miles. This is the distance between us and the sun. Now, 
try to imagine us going to, I guess, the next closest star, which is Proxima Centauri. Is that how you even say it? I don't know. Let's just go with that. It wouldn't just be one sheet of paper. It wouldn't even just be a hundred sheets of paper. It would be a stack of paper 70 feet high. That's how far we are to the closest star. That's 426,720 pieces of paper, and each one of those pieces of paper is 93 million miles. Now, I don't have the skills to check this math. I, I got this illustration from another teacher, so if it's wrong, it's not my fault. Doing the best I can. According to NASA, it would take us 6,300 years to get to that closest star. Isn't that crazy? Mind-blowing. Here's the thing, though. That's just the closest star in our galaxy. The diameter of our galaxy would be a stack of papers, not 70 feet high, but 310 miles high. Over 250 billion stars. Here's an image that I grabbed off of NASA's website. It was uh, taken by the Hubble telescope. You can see the, the center of the Milky Way or the hot spot, as Tim Mackey would call it. If you know, you know, if you're listening to the Bible Project right now. And they just kind of zoomed in with the Hubble telescope of what's going on in the center of the Milky Way. And you can't even see it. I mean, you can't even tell. It's staggering how many stars, how many billions, tens of billions of stars are in our galaxy. Here's the thing, our galaxy is massive and our galaxy is glorious and it's almost incomprehensible. And yet you know this if you've been in any science class. In spite of all of its mind-boggling stats, it's nothing more than a speck of dust in the universe. It's just one of 125 billion galaxies just like it and it's not even that impressive when you line it up next to the others. The universe is incomprehensible. And even with all of our science and all of our technology and our most brilliant minds, we haven't begun to tap the depths of its mysteries. And yet this is what I want you to see. And the reason I share that is that every single star and every single galaxy in the entire universe was spoken into existence. And it is currently being held in its place by the power of the word of God. Hebrews 1 says it like this, long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He created the world with his word. He appoints all things with his word. He holds the universe together by the power of his word. Guys, the reason that Isaiah could make all of these audacious promises about the word of God, that it always accomplishes its purpose, that it always returns with its bounty, that it always succeeds in its mission, is because he understood that the word of God is the most powerful force in the entire universe. If it spoke all things into existence, if it holds all things together, then nothing can stop it from doing what it wants. The question that I want to ask you today is, do you actually believe that? 
Do you believe that promise? And do you believe it so much? Are you so certain of that promise that you will stake your entire life on that? See, it's one thing to believe that the word of God can do those things. We'd all say, yeah, God could do that if he wanted to. He's powerful enough to take thorns and transform them into beautiful cypress trees. But it's another thing to say, I believe he will do those things. Do you believe he can? Do you believe he will? Massive difference. Charlotte's an awesome city. I love this city more than any other city I have ever been to. Lord willing, I will die in this city. And I will fight you if you tell me you found a better city in the world. I love Charlotte. It's got so much great music and restaurants and breweries and cafes and sports. And now we've got, you know, MLS, which is great because Messi's about to sign for Miami. So we'll be able to watch a good soccer player next year. It's going to be awesome. Can't wait. I'll be there. Charlotte is incredible. And yet when you look beneath the surface, you begin to see the brokenness. You begin to see the thorns. You begin to see the briars that pervade our city. We're in the top ten nationally for human trafficking. We're ninth in the nation for broken marriages. Uh, it is the worst 50th out of 50 for upward mobility, which means our systems are broken. It's second to last in racial trust, which shouldn't surprise us because Sunday is still the most segregate, segregated day of, of the week. I look out and I love you and I, and I see mostly white people. Why is that? On top of that, 10 of the top 11 most lost pockets in the state are inside of 45. Three, the top three most lost pockets in this state are in our three-mile radius. The, the richest zip code, the wealthiest zip code in the state is Midtown, Myers Park, and it is the most lost zip code in the entire state as well. Our homes are broken, our schools are broken, our systems are broken, our relationships are broken. Guys, I'm an optimist, okay? I'm an optimist. But when I look around, even I see the thorns and the briars. In a lot of ways, it feels like the odds are stacked against the word of the Lord. And so again, my question for all of you today is, do you believe that the word of the Lord, the word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ and his kingdom is powerful enough to move in our city and transform briars into myrtles and thorns into cypresses? Do you believe that? And are you willing to stake your entire life on the promise that if you speak the word of the Lord, it will not return empty? My goal today is to help you be convinced of this promise if you don't already believe it. And I want you to be so convinced that you will stake your entire life on it and that you will be a messenger of reconciliation and that you will speak the word of the Lord wherever you go and that little, little trees are planted all over this city. That's my goal. My the way I want to do that is by taking you to Acts chapter 8. I want to take you to this time that, that Cheryl just read to us. It's a time in the early church where it seemed like all of the odds were stacked against the church. All of the odds were stacked against the word of the Lord. The advance of the gospel was basically next to impossible. It looked like persecution is becoming a harsh reality. Opposition is everywhere. Racial tensions are at an all-time high. The culture is totally against it all of a sudden. Messengers are risking everything by speaking it out in the open. That is the context of Acts chapter 8. And so if it could advance in Acts chapter 8, it can advance today. 
So what I want to show you is how and why it advanced back then so that we can see how and why it will advance through you and me as well. That's where we're going to go. Um, there are a, a few things that really stand out to me in Acts chapter 8, and I want to show you these three things. If you're taking notes, these are the three reasons the Word of God is an unstoppable force in the world. Three reasons why Isaiah 55 wasn't just fulfilled back then, 2,000 years ago, but why it can be fulfilled today as well. First, the Word of God is unstoppable because it thrives in opposition. We saw this a lot yesterday, uh, last week, not yesterday, last week. If you were here yesterday, I wasn't. Um, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to elaborate a little bit more on this because this is really important. Look back at verse 1. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And everyone except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them into prison. Now remember, this is important. The book of Acts starts with Jesus right before his ascension in Acts 1.8. And he gives his church this mission to, to make disciples, to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That's their mission. What's fascinating to me, though, is that up until Acts chapter 8, those early Christians have not gone to Judea, they have not gone to Samaria, they have not gone to the ends of the earth, they're stuck in Jerusalem. They haven't left the city yet, and we don't know exactly why, maybe they just loved what they had going on. Awesome community, day after day, hanging out with their friends, breaking bread, saying the prayers, worshiping Jesus, hearing from the apostles. That must have been incredible. Powerful witness, favor in the eyes of everyone that they came into contact with. Why would you want to leave that? Why would you want to leave Jerusalem and go to Judea? But then Stephen's murdered by an angry mob, and everything is flipped upside down. Everything changes. Favor is replaced with hatred, peace, with violence, openness, with suspicion. Opposition toward Christianity had gotten so bad in Jerusalem that every single person except for the apostles had to flee the city. So just try to imagine that flip. They just went from everything is wonderful, we'll never leave, to everyone is gone except for the apostles. The Jewish leaders were so zealous in their hatred of the Christians that they even pursued them as they fled. And that's pretty wild. It's like they didn't just want them out of Jerusalem. They wanted them off the face of the earth. And so as they're fleeing, the religious leaders are chasing and Saul was one of those leaders. It says that he was ravaging the church. In the Greek, it's that word ravaging is it implies sadistic cruelty. In ancient Greek literature, it was used to describe wild boars tearing open victims' bodies. Like that's what this word means. Saul has tasted blood with Stephen, and now he's thirsty for more. And so he's hunting the Christians, looking for blood. As one author put it, he hounded those early Christians to the death. This is what's so amazing about this story, though. And this is what I want you to see. This is the whole point. The more they hounded them, the more the gospel spread. Look at verse 4. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. So you see what's going on here? This is the beautiful irony of the word of the Lord. 
It doesn't just advance in spite of opposition. It actually advances because of opposition. It thrives in it. The Great Commission is finally starting to be carried out on the back of persecution. It's like persecution is the mule that is carrying the gospel throughout the Roman Empire. Gospel was stuck in Jerusalem, and all of a sudden, it's going out with all of the refugees. What you and I need to understand is that this has been the case for the last 2,000 years. This is true. It's an axiom. It is a law. Whenever the people of God have been oppressed, the word of God advances. I, I love this one story that happened um, early on in, in the 4th century, 303 AD. The emperor Galerius hated Christianity. Um, and he issued an edict banning all Christian gatherings, ordering the seizure and destruction of all churches, requiring that all scripture should be burned, barring Christians from public office, appearing in court, and on and on it went. This was the beginning of what we now call the, the Great Persecution. Maybe you've heard about it in, in your history classes. Christians were tortured in the most brutal ways, as one historian put it, in the triumph of Christianity. And I, and I have this quote, I believe. One member of the imperial household named Peter, who was discovered to be a Christian, was stripped, raised high, and scourged all over. Scourging was this brutal torture that they, they put Christ through. Remember the cat of nine tails? It was a whip with shards of glass and metal on it. And they would whip you until your flesh was totally removed from your back and your organs were totally exposed. It was called the, the half death. Most people didn't survive it. It was, it was shocking that Christ survived it before his crucifixion. That's what scourging is. Then salt and vinegar were poured on his wounds and he was slowly roasted alive. This is all in the triumph of Christianity, which is a fascinating book. But this is what we need to see. On his deathbed, this cruel and sadistic emperor revoked all of the decrees, the, the decrees that he had issued against Christianity. And then, as he's dying, he complains to all of his advisors and all of his friends that had gathered around his bed. And he says, I was trying everything I could to suppress Christianity, but instead of suppressing it, I only helped it spread through the empire. And then he dies. He thought he was going to stamp it out, and all he did was spread it. The same thing happened in China. That's still happening to this day, started in 1949 in China. In 1949, the communist leaders kicked 637 missionaries out of China. That was every single missionary that was in China, out of the country. Yet, within four years, almost 300 of them had snuck back into the country and under severe persecution, Christians began to multiply. The Washington Post recorded a couple of years ago that right now it's estimated that there are 100 million Christians in China and that number grows every single year. Instead of smothering the gospel, instead of stamping it out, opposition only succeeds in spreading it. I love how this author put it. He said, the wind only increases the flame. The wind only increases the flame. Guys, this is such a powerful reminder of the sovereignty of God, isn't it? It's such a powerful reminder that nothing catches them off guard and that everything that is evil that is done against us will be turned to good. 
that goodness and mercy are hunting us down like, like, like hound dogs, chasing us all of our lives, as, Psalm, as the psalmist David put it. We see it in Genesis. Joseph, Joseph is sold into slavery. And then Egypt is saved, and all of their neighbors are saved as a result. Later on, at the beginning of Exodus, Pharaoh says, I need every single baby boy executed because this people that are our slaves are getting too large. They're growing. They're too great a number. They're going to overtake us. we got to start managing the birth rate. And yet that brutal decree led one baby boy to be hidden in the Nile where he would be discovered and adopted by a princess, raised in the palace, given an education, and ultimately prepared to lead Israel out of slavery. God was working in their misery to bring out their liberation. This is what he always does. Story after story throughout scripture. He is behind the scenes. And even in the most difficult and painful and agonizing times, he is accomplishing something for his glory, the advance of his gospel, and the good of his people. Every single time. And so Luke wants us to see that this is true even in persecution. This is true even in opposition. God, in his divine wisdom, which we can't fathom, his thoughts are not our thoughts, his ways are not our ways, but in his divine wisdom, he doesn't just allow persecution, he uses persecution to spread the good news of his son, Jesus Christ. I think about the Apostle Paul getting on Nero's nerves. And uh, so much so that Nero had to do something about him because he just wouldn't shut up about Jesus and it was causing issues in the empire. And so Paul's arrested and chained and he's locked into a tiny room with a Roman guard all day, every day. You know this story. And the authorities think that this will solve their problem. That'll shut up the missionary. That'll get rid of the church planter, but it only makes it worse. Philippians 1.12, Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. That word for advance the gospel, it has the idea of, of, of the Roman bulldozers getting rid of the trees so that they can make their roads. It's just getting rid of all of the obstacles so that we can make a road because all roads are going to Rome. Paul says that's what my imprisonment has done. It's got rid of all of the obstacles so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all of the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Now, just a little context here before we move on. The imperial guard was the elite army in Rome. Hand-selected 9,000 soldiers. Um, they were the most important group of military people in the empire. Um, they were Caesar's personal bodyguards. They were in charge of... Uh, the emperor's safety, but they were also in charge of making kings and establishing rulers. If you read Roman history, you, you read about a lot of assassinations, and then other guys raised up. Guess who was doing that? The imperial guard. So they were the kingmakers of Rome. They would protect a, a Caesar that they liked, and they would kill the ones that they didn't and put somebody in that they liked better. In many ways, they were the most important group of people, the most powerful group of people in the empire. Now, Paul was an enemy of, an, of the empire. He was an enemy of Caesar. He was telling people, you don't need to worship Caesar. You need to worship Jesus. That Caesar's not Lord. Jesus is Lord. And so Nero hated him. And so he said, I can't just put you in a normal prison, and I can't just put you around normal guards. You're getting the imperial guards 24-7. 
guard after guard after guard in rotation 24-7. And every time a new guard would come in, he wouldn't know what he was going to be getting into. Because the Apostle Paul was just like, all right, I'm telling you the gospel now. Until every single one of those men had heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. How else would he have ever had that opportunity? The most powerful and influential group in the entire empire. He wouldn't even known to pray for that access. How did he get it? The access was the direct result of opposition. The word of God advanced in ways that he could never have dreamed of. Guys, you need to believe this. Because opposition is rising. And we think our natural tendency is to say, okay, opposition is rising. The fire is getting hotter. There's going to be some consequences for saying things about Jesus, just like we saw last week. Maybe I should just be quiet. And you need to believe that what you have in your head and in your heart, this word, this gospel, is life. And it is power. And the more the heat rises... And the, the hotter the flames get, guess what? The more powerful that word becomes. It is when we become faithful to the point of losing things that the word is seen to be true. So now is not the time to shut up. Now is not the time to get scared. Now is the time to get excited that God might just be about to move in this country. But he does it through us. The word of the Lord will be successful. It will not return void. It will make a name for Christ in this city because it thrives in oppression. That's the first thing that we see here in Acts chapter 8. Second, the word of God is unstoppable because it spreads through ordinary people. Again, we saw this last week. We're just going to continue it on. Look back at verse 2. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Except the apostles. Who was accomplishing the Great Commission? Not the apostles. Who was carrying the gospel outside of Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth? We don't know. They're anonymous. They're unknown, ordinary people. Everyone except for the apostles fled. Isn't this such a beautiful picture of the grace and power of God? The very first time the gospel expands beyond Jerusalem, it was carried on the lips of ordinary people. Look at verse 4. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Now that word preached is a little misleading because now all of you are like, I got to go preach the word wherever I go. The, the, the word for preach, the word is literally euangelion and it's, it's, it's a word that it just means speaking or proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming good news. If you've got good news, you share it. That's what this word preach means. In the ancient world, it was used whenever a new emperor took the throne. He would send out riders on horses all throughout the empire to, to preach the good news that there's a new emperor, that they get to worship him. If a great battle was won, if an enemy was conquered, they would preach the good news, the euangelion. Messengers all over the empire. That's what's going on here with all of these anonymous, ordinary missionaries. 
They're not preaching sermons like Peter. They're not preaching sermons like Stephen. They're not preaching a sermon like this. They are just sharing the good news that there's a new king and he's been victorious over our greatest enemies, namely the devil, our sin, and the world that wants to overcome us. And so we celebrate that good news. What I want you to see today is that this is how God's plan is always accomplished. One author put it like this, the church grows not by the preaching of a few anointed apostles, but when every believer is filled with the Spirit and testifies of the gospel in the streets. So in other words, your neighborhoods and your workplaces and your communities are not going to be reached by me. They're never coming here. There's no reason for them to give up brunch and mimosas on a Sunday morning to come hear me preach to them. They will not be reached because I'm standing behind this pulpit. They will be reached because God put you in their lives. Your neighbors will meet Jesus because God, in his wisdom, said, you're living here. Next to that person and next to that person. Your coworkers will meet Jesus because he gave you this job that you thought was about your money. It wasn't. Your family will be reached because in God's providence and in his grace and in his mercy, let you meet him, rescued you, redeemed you, forgave you of your sin. He said, I'm sending you right back in. I want more daughters. I want more sons. Go get them. They're not going to be reached by me. We have made a huge mistake in our churches to cause ordinary Christians to think that evangelism is bringing people into a building so that they can hear from a professional. That's not evangelism. My job is to pump you up and send you out. So that you can be equipped and empowered and emboldened to share the good news with everyone in your sphere of influence. A friend of mine recently told a story about a trip he took. And I've told this before, but I'll tell it again because we get a new church like every two years. Um, so this is very easy for me. I can reuse all my stories. It's great. For all of you faithful people, again, I apologize. I mean, you know, you're just the, you are the saints of this church. Um, but he went to this country and, and it, was a, it was like a third world country and um, he was up in the hills, and most people didn't have shoes. Most people weren't clothed very well, just like a little loincloth. Most people didn't have food to eat every day. Most people lived in these grass huts, and they were uh, dozens of miles removed from the city center, and they were just up in the hills. And, and my friend noticed he was walking around, he was speaking, and, and he was uh, doing some training for the leaders in this little village. And he noticed that no one had shoes, and no one had clothes, and no one had food, and they barely had houses, but every single person in the village had a cell phone. And so that was confusing. He's just like, what's going on here? And so he asked the leaders, hey, I've noticed no one has food. 
but everyone's got a cell phone. How did this happen? And he was like, well, it's, it's really interesting that you asked that question because dozens of miles away there in the city center is the cell phone company. And they realized that if they were going to saturate the entire region with their cell phones, they couldn't expect the villagers to come down to them because it would never happen. And so what they did was every time someone bought a phone, they incentivized that person to be a salesman or saleswoman for the company and take phones wherever they went and sell them to their peers. And so not only did everyone have a cell phone in these villages, but most of them were salesmen and saleswomen. And they had saturated the entire region with cell phones. Now you can see the implication, can't you? It's so obvious As long as Christians live and act as if the gospel can only be disseminated within four walls through the lips of a paid professional, we will never saturate this city with the gospel. But (laughs) if we all get the fact that we are representatives Paul said, God making his appeal through us, you are ministers, messengers of reconciliation. And you take that message of reconciliation where you live, work, play, study, and shop. And everywhere you go, you share good news. Guess what? Every single person in this city is going to hear the gospel. They're going to have an opportunity to respond to the gospel. And they will never have to step foot in this room. And we could actually reach the city. This is where it gets challenging. If that's how the gospel advances, and if that's how it always advances, and that's how it always advances, through people and not pulpits, when you and I don't open our mouths about Jesus outside of these four walls, the word of the Lord doesn't go anywhere. The word of the Lord always accomplishes its mission when it goes out. What happens if it doesn't go out? Nothing. We pray for God to move in our communities, and we pray for revival in our country, and we pray for God to heal broken families, and we pray for thorns to be turned into cypresses, but none of those prayers will be answered until we start speaking the word of power. So the question I want to ask you today is, are you one of those ordinary people who's just carrying it with you everywhere you go? The church turned the Roman Empire upside down because wherever those early Christians found themselves, they preached the word. Is that true of our church? It hasn't been in America. It has not been. We've become really comfortable with building platforms and pulpits and preachers. We got a lot of famous world-class preachers, and I love listening to them, like tons of them. We've gotten really comfortable with listening to the professional and missing the power. And so let's be the ordinary Christians that leave this place and actually talk about Jesus. Some of you might be thinking, well, I'm not gifted enough. That's true. Some of you might be thinking, I'm too weak. Yep. Um, In every single room, there is the strongest person in the room. I don't know. 
who the strongest person in this room is right now. Who? Zach Ratliff. Yep, yep, probably, probably. <laughs> um, so, so we know who the strongest is now. Um, don't answer this one, Allie. Um, so that, in every single room, there is a weakest, too. Um, and then there's a, a spectrum, and there's a bell curve. Um, and uh, there is a smartest person in this room right now. And there is a not smartest person in this room right now. And there is the most articulate and well-read and well-cultured person in the room right now. And there is the person who's never left Charlotte. Why would you, though? There's nowhere else to go. This is the city. Um, the weaker you are, the more power you get. The kingdom of God is not like the kingdom of this world. The strong are not the movers and shakers in the kingdom of God. The weak are. The less educated you are, the less you know, guess what happens? The more the spirit actually has to work <laughs> through you. And the more you see of him work, the more power you are actually manifesting. Your weakness is not an excuse. Your weakness is an opportunity. And so if you are the weakest person in this room, if you are the least smart person in this room, it is your advantage. As we saw last week, when you walk with and depend on and submit to and obey and pray in the Spirit, you have power. The kingdom of God is not of words. It is a kingdom of power. So speak. The word of the Lord will be successful. It will not return void. It will make a name for Jesus in the world because it does not depend on professionals. It doesn't depend on pulpits or charismatic personalities. It depends on ordinary people like you and me who go out in the power of the Holy Spirit speaking the word. Finally, the word of God is unstoppable because it dismantles cultural obstacles. Look back at verse four. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria. <laughs> And proclaim to them the Christ. Now that might not sound too dramatic to you, but I guarantee you 2,000 years ago that was front page news and it would have been scandalous that a Jew would go into Samaria and offer them the Messiah. If you are new to the Bible, the Jews hated the Samaritans, the Samaritans hated the Jews. They had done so for literally a thousand years. Uh, it goes all the way back to when Assyria came over and conquered Israel and the Israelites married and meshed with the Assyrians, and so they became half-bloods. And so the, the, the existence of these half-blooded Samaritans was a constant reminder to Jewish people that Israel had rebelled against God, disobeyed God, had lost their purity, and then had earned their own destruction. There was so much bad blood that Jews refused to set foot in Samaria. They would literally add two days to their journey so that they could go around Samaria. They would never walk through it. When Jesus was with his disciples and they were going through Samaria, you remember his inner circle, the men who eventually started the church, were so racist, they asked Jesus to call down fire from heaven and burn up the Samaritans. The Samaritans didn't like them either. During Passover, they would get a bunch of pigs. 
because pigs were ceremonially unclean. So during Passover, the Jews were making all of these sacrifices, and the Samaritans would run up to the walls of Jerusalem with all of these pigs, and they'd throw the pigs over the walls so that the Jews would be defiled, they would be unclean, and they wouldn't be able to make sacrifices. On and on it went. Could go on and on. Now Philip, a Jew, is preaching about Jesus, the Messiah, in Samaria, and to the shock and awe of everyone, they're listening to him. Look at verse 6. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. And there was much joy in the city. That's a fulfillment of Isaiah 55. A thousand years of animosity and distrust and hatred and bitterness are being dismantled in one conversation. Can you imagine? The gospel of Jesus Christ does not just restore our relationship with God. It restores our relationship with each other as well. It creates a new humanity. It creates a new people, a new race even. It gives us an identity in God's family that transcends our culture, transcends our ethnicity, transcends our preferences and tradition. As one author put it, it doesn't erase our culture, it doesn't erase our race, it doesn't erase our tradition, but it gives us something that is weightier and something that matters more, that transcends culture, race, and tradition. Guys, Christ is more important than whoever is currently on the throne in America. He's just significantly more important than whoever's the president for four years, maybe eight. He's so much more glorious, and his kingdom is as well than this country has ever dreamed of being, or ever will, even at our peak, which we're not in right now, hasn't come close to the kingdom of God. And so the gospel creates unity that transcends culture and, and it transcends race and all of these obstacles that exist between us, every barrier. You feel why this is so significant for us today? If you pay attention to the news at all, like if you've, if you've read anything this past week or this past month or this past year, you know that we are so divided, politically divided. Racial class differences dominate the fabric of our society. The chasm is growing wider and wider between these so-called United States. We feel it. What our country needs now more than ever is a gospel that transcends political agenda, eradicates racial prejudice, and reorients our socioeconomic hierarchy. We, we need that kind of gospel, and politicians can't give us that gospel. Jesus can. In fact, he's the only one who can. The word of the Lord will be successful, and it will not return void, and it will make a name for him in the world, because it's the only thing in the world that has the power to dismantle every cultural obstacle. So as we go and preach the gospel, we become ministers of reconciliation, and then the world starts to see reconciliation, and it validates the truth that Jesus really is king. And so when we gather together, man, we long to see 
a diverse body, a diverse family, not just ethnically, but culturally, socioeconomically, generationally. And we're working on it because right now everyone's like in their 20s and educated and wealthy and going like this in society. And our prayer, even in the last two years, is we've been engaging literally the other side of the railroad tracks, is that we would look like heaven is going to look one day. Multi-generational, all generations worshiping king. Not because we like the same kind of music, but because we've got a God who transcends our preferences in music. When we long to be a place where we have our, our, our brothers, our future brothers and sisters from Brook Hill and Southside in this room worshiping with us despite socioeconomic barriers, despite cultural and racial barriers, that we would worship together as one body. Not because it's cool, but because Jesus is king and he's brought us together. That's our prayer. That's what we're longing for. And so we're actively pursuing that. Justice and mercy is a huge part of our church. And Jonathan Perez is leading us out in that. And he's going to talk about it in January. About all the different things that we're asking God to do in and through us in this city. And you can be a part of that. You need to be a part of that. Guys, let me close with this. Do you see the result? What's the result of the advance of the word of God? What's the result of the unstoppable gospel of Jesus Christ? Look back at verse 8. And there was much joy in the city. Not just a little bit of joy. Not some mild enthusiasm. Much joy. Great joy. Indescribable joy. One of the major themes that we find in the book of Acts is wherever the gospel message goes, joy always follows. And so if we're going to be people of the word, if we're going to be messengers of the gospel, we don't just go out with boldness, we don't just go out with compassion, but we go out with joy, inviting other people into the joy that Christ came to give them. Thorns and briars are everywhere. Pain and conflict and disease and death constantly remind us that things are not the way that they should be. But the gospel has the power to take those thorns and turn them into beautiful cypress trees. To take the briars and make them myrtles. It takes everything that was ruined at the fall and it redeems and restores them. So now, where there is brokenness, there will be hope. Where there is currently destitution and conflict, there will be reconciliation. Where there is currently shame and currently guilt, there will be mercy and grace. Where there is currently sorrow right now in this city and in your life, there will be great joy. Joy is contagious. It can't be bottled up. It must be expressed. And so the word of the Lord will be successful. It will not return void. It will make a name for him in the world. Not just because of what it does in opposition and not just because of how it's spread through ordinary people and not just because it gets rid of all of these obstacles, but because it produces joy in the hearts of those who receive it.
And the overflow of that joy is a constant invitation for others to enter into it. Amen? Let's be those kind of people. Would you stand with me? I'm going to invite you to pray where you are silently. If there's a promise that you need to believe, ask the Spirit to help you believe it. If there's a, a sin you need to confess, confess it so that you can be healed. If there's a step that you need to take, tell the Spirit and ask Him for His strength. And then after you pray silently where you are, we'll go to the table and we'll celebrate the cross together.